Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. We are very aggressively in the intelligence community pursuing um, machines as partners because we think part of harnessing data is really going forward on artificial intelligence. I think some of our openness is also leading to better possibility for business relationships. And I think there will be some, you know, we've, we've talked about the Googles. I think they should do business with us. I think they're a little, they're misguided about the rule of law and who they can trust. Twitter and Google and others, if you're listening to us, dealing with an organization that swears to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States to protect civil liberties and is all about open and free speech, that's a good choice. So you work for Dan Coats. I do. He is the only core member of the president's original national security team who's still in his job. What is Dan like? What is it like to work for him? Dan's a great solid American. I believe that the intelligence community is strong in part because of the way Dan has conducted his job. He has played intelligence straight down the middle. I don't know any DNI could have done in this time what Dan Coates has done and proud to be a member of his team. Sue Gordon is the principal deputy director of national intelligence, the office which leads the U.S. intelligence community. That makes her the second highest ranking official in the IC. Before her current role, Sue served as the deputy director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And prior to that, she served at the Central Intelligence Agency for 27 years. I just had a chance to sit down with Sue to discuss a variety of issues facing the intelligence community. We'll be right back with this discussion with Sue, the latest in our Leaders of the IC series. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Sue, welcome. It is great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. So for our longtime listeners, they'll remember that you were with us on Intelligence Matters on January 2nd, 2018. That seems like a long time ago. A little over 550 days 
We actually counted it. So it's great to have you back. When you were first on the show, you were five months into your job. Mm-hmm. Now you are almost two years. Mm-hmm. In fact, your two-year anniversary is early next month. That's unbelievable. So congratulations. Thank you. And so I guess where I want to start is by asking you what you've learned in those two years. What are your biggest takeaways from leading, managing, working with intelligence officers in the intelligence community over that period of time? What really stands out to you? So let's see if I can think about it in several domains. Uh, The first is, gosh, this is a crazy world and a really different time. And I'm sure my predecessors would say that, but I'm old and I've been in this business a long time. And I will tell you, this is a different world than I've ever seen. Crazy in what sense? Um, It's so fast moving. Uh, It's a world where every technology is available to everyone. It's a world that is perfectly digitally connected. So that changes how information moves and the relationships um, between organizations, parties, nations, partners, reach of our ad- adversaries and competitors. And it's a world of data abundance um, where the world knows everything and you're trying to figure out what it is. Um, and, and that speed and difference laid uh, as a backdrop for nation states interest playing out is just really interesting to try and sort it out particularly if you're in the business of intelligence so that's one it is Mm -hmm. it is a really different world Mm -hmm. the second thing i've learned is i think that intelligence has the opportunity to be the hero of this moment as much as it has ever been and i know that can sound different to people who listen to the stories about how the relationship may or may not be with the administration or what's going on with the Congress. But the truth is the fundamental craft of intelligence that's about wisdom, insight, and clarity delivered so that our leaders can decide before events force them is just as important. So that's three. Just as important or even more important. Important. Or even more that, important. Right? I mean, yeah, know, I think I, we have I the chance. So too. Yeah, it, it, it is. Three in order to continue to deliver that, as we have always sought to, we're going to have to be really different as an intelligence community. We're going to have to act. And you mentioned that a little bit in your Foreign Affairs article, and I hope we talk about that some. For the intelligence community is better than it's ever been, and it's more of a community than it's ever been. More than of a community than it even was when you were there and we were there a minute ago. Do you find that? Do you find that to be a struggle to keep pulling it together or are there kind of forces that tend to pull it apart or is that change because because when i yeah. was there the forces were always trying to pull it apart and the dni was trying to pull it together yeah is it different now yeah so the first thing is i don't think the community i don't think we ever want the community to act as a department there is something lovely about a consortium of 17 agencies each of whom has something specific to do and then it tries to play together so and that has led to our relative agility, our relative innovation is because we have agencies who can make relatively independent decisions. Um, that said, the reason why I think it's a more of a community than it's ever been is, one, we have great leadership. Um, and two, 
each agency now recognizes more than it that it needs more than it can do alone and every agency needs something provided to it so it can take advantage of all the other things and so provided to it by some other agency mm-hmm. yeah and so you know post 911 with the formation of the DNI um, we really started to talk about the value of integrated intelligence and so we integrated now we have much more interdependence and that is making us be more of a community. So, Sue, I'd love to structure the vast majority of our talk around the big challenges mm-hmm. facing the IC, the ones the community really needs to tackle, the ones it really needs to get right if the IC is going to be able to continue to provide to the country what the country needs from it. And so maybe the place to start is to ask you what you see as the biggest challenges facing the community going forward. You know, maybe what you see is the, the top two, the top three. How do you think about that? And then we'll go through each one of them in some depth. Um, okay, so backdrop to everything I'm going to say is uh, this is a world where the threats are to and through information. Um, so... Both our opportunities and our challenges, I think, are related to that. Um, what, is, so, what does that mean, to and through information? Yeah, so we'll take the the two, and that's we can choose the influence in elections. Mm. Uh, that is, I almost said potentially an existential threat. I can think of no greater threat to America than actions that would make us not believe in ourselves. That is that is national interests of our adversaries using information in order to sow seeds of division and, again, make us not believe in ourselves or make people believe their votes don't count or... Uh, position tools in our infrastructure so they could deny us either information or uh, withdraw information or uh, damage infrastructure. Different damage infrastructure. Those are all information that are threats to information. Um, Through information is the use of data. So in a world where it really is about your ability to command data, um, then the person is going to be able to use it, whether to synthesize information to see patterns that aren't there, deliver information more quickly um, to achieve action, that's where the advantage is going to be. So if you think about challenges for the intelligence community, the first is being able to see the threats coming from adversaries in something as elusive as threats through information systems. And then the other piece is challenges for the community. How are we successful at dominating an information environment so that we have more ability to use the information that's available? Great. Let's take both of those. Okay. So the first is seeing the threats, Mm -hmm. right? So talk about that one in more depth and how the community has to be positioned in order to do that. And maybe the way I'll put it is that I don't think we saw 
two, three years in advance, the potential for a nation state to go big mm-hmm. in terms of using social media as a weapon against mm-hmm. our democracy, right? Mm-hmm. We were worrying about cyber in a more traditional way. Mm-hmm. So this came at us. And like, isn't that, funny, did, you, isn't where, that funny you said that? Where cyber that in a from? traditional way. You know, now cyber is so passe. Right, right. right. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question of did we miss it, how we miss it. I think we got the traditional cyber right. things right. We, we saw them stealing we information from the DNC and from right. from Hillary's right. campaign and from John Podesta. We saw them trying to get into state and local voting systems. Yeah. It took us a long time to see them messing around with social media. Yeah. Um, so a couple things. Um, one, it probably shouldn't have because there's nothing new under the sun with the Soviets, now Russians, um, their doctrine to undermine democracy And one of the hardest things for people to do is to see the same intent manifest through new technology and new capabilities. So probably should have imagined that was going to happen because it's a longstanding. And by the way, I was there. No, it's longstanding. longstanding So so I think one is imagining it. We probably should have. And it's a great reminder that the same intent will just manifest differently as right. technology. So I now I think we see that differently. So how do we how do we then see what's coming next? Right. Right. That we don't see right now. Right. So we really have uh, raised our vision to now ask that question. We have no expectation that in 2020 they will stay with the approach that they had in 2018. Um, so I think we already have raised our vision. The question is, over time, you and I as as careerists, how do you keep on being refreshed? How does the intelligence community itself not believe its prior assessments so much that it can't see something else? But but I think we're there, too. Uh, I think we were a little bit limited. And this is what's so interesting about this time is because of digital connectedness, our adversaries and competitors can cross boundaries that we believe in, right? So China can go and steal secrets from the private sector, but the federal government doesn't go into the private companies. We we don't believe in that. Or Russia tried to influence elections and they could go to state and local In our country, the federal government doesn't do that. So what's so fascinating, what may have contributed is, and social media is so much about U.S. persons and freedom of speech, that the threats crossed boundaries that we had constructed that we believed in, and they could go, and we didn't. Same was true of 9-11. Right. Right. It is. Same was true of 9-11. Right. So keep doing that. So... When you think about what the intelligence community has to do about it, and I think we already are, is now the threat surface is disproportionately not controlled by the government. And the people who are deciding about protection are not government officials. And what that means is intelligence has to be made available for those decision makers, whether it's the private sector, y'all are being duped. Or whether, I mean, whether it's the populace, you all are being duped, or the private sector, you all are having your secrets stolen. You need to make different decisions, and we need to give you information 
so that you can make different decisions. And that is a big leap for us culturally. But if we remember we're in the national security business, I think we'll find our way to be able to provide good stuff. There. And But to get there, and you've yes, talked about this a lot publicly, to get there, there's got to be this relationship, right, mm-hmm. between the government and the private sector, which isn't as healthy as it needs to be. At least that's my view into mm-hmm. it. I've had a lot of interaction with folks in Silicon Valley who openly question the value of what I did for 33 years, <laughs> right? So how do you manage that issue, right? How do you get to where you need to be with the private sector so that they see you as somebody who's there to help them rather than to undermine what they're trying to do? Uh, so I think we're, well, one, we're learning because you said, as you know, this is culturally difficult for us, but we are producing much more information openly. So I'm, I'm proud of the intelligence community assessment on the 2016 election that was published on classified. That was a huge leap, but what it did was it shared information and we are doing great things with the private sector to talk about counterintelligence threats. Um, and it's with no ask, it's just sharing it and it's sharing it openly and being involved in the conversations. So I think, I think our conversation with the American people is really helping the trust um, with individual companies, uh, I, I think the people who choose not to do business with us are much more vocal than the partners that we have. Um, you know that we are very aggressively in the intelligence community pursuing uh, machines as partners because we think part of harnessing data is really going forward on artificial intelligence. We have so many people that are interested in working with us on that. Um, so I think some of our openness um, is also leading to better possibility for business relationships. And I think there will be some, you know, we've we've talked about the Googles before. I, I think they should do business with us. I think they're a little, they're misguided about uh, the rule of law and who they can trust. But I will also tell you that that I'm grateful that they're part of the American uh, fabric, and even if they don't work directly with us, the things they're doing are improving society and creating things that make us better. That relationship will come along. I, I can wait for them. But one of the things I find interesting, and this is me saying this so you can react to this, is I find companies like Google um, and some others, I'll mention Twitter, not willing to do business with the U.S. government. Yeah. But they are willing to do business with foreign governments and help foreign governments achieve things. And so in my case, the trust issue goes both ways, right? It's not just one way. It's not just their distrust in us. There's a little bit of distrust on our side in them. Can you react to that? Yeah, I am at a loss to understand that. Um, I mean, helping the Chinese develop a better search engine that gets the Chinese government what it wants, right? Especially when we know things about that society and that regime and the control they want to have of the people and the fact that they scoop up data and they want to be able to use it um, and they're interested in uh, not just using information but 
domination in really interesting ways. I'm at a loss to understand that. We're trying as part of our campaign um, in counterintelligence to share that more openly so people will make decisions. When you guys do that, is it yeah. classified or unclassified? Uh, both. Both? Both. We'll group, get groups of um, CEOs together to share with them information that we think they need to hear. But we also have a massive unclassified cam- unclassified campaign um, called Know Your Risk, Raise Your Shield, where we're just sharing information so that people can see what's happening. One of the things you mentioned earlier but, was... But i got to tell you, for Twitter and Google and others, if you're listening to us, um, dealing with an organization that swears to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States that protects civil liberties and is all about open sesame and free speech, that's a good choice. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Sue Gordon. Good morning to you and welcome to CBS This Morning. Understanding the world. We're going to begin with breaking news. Begins with the right questions. Have police discovered a motive? Does the president have a red line here? What are they doing to prevent this from happening again? Join Gail King, Anthony Mason, and Tony DeCopel on CBS This Morning. We know a little more this morning. This is a major development. This is a very serious situation. More news every morning on the show everyone is talking about. We have much more news ahead for you. CBS This Morning. So, Sue, you mentioned that you're putting more information out to the public, which I think is great. You're also putting data out and you're letting people do analysis on it. There's some really interesting things that NGA, for example, is doing in that regard, putting commercial imagery out and letting people go at it. And some fascinating, fascinating analysis is on the NGA website that students and professors have taken imagery and made judgments about what's happening in North Korea or other parts of the world. Talk about that and why that's so important. Uh, So don't, I think that is perhaps the best single representation of what I think is good government. So capability that was developed um, for the national security segment at the taxpayer's expense being given back to the public who funded it for their use. That's awesome. So NGA making their years and years of both imagery and earth observations available for study or for development of new cap- uh, new algorithms, new tools, um, has really made a difference in terms of environmental studies. What they've done in terms of releasing data on the Arctic has allowed mapping and elevation studies that have never been done before that just benefit exploration in ways that are not national security but just societal benefit. What they did in terms of Ebola, in terms of hurricanes, the number of algorithms that they developed for use on that data that they make available by on GitHub just so developers can come up with new capabilities that can be used against the new commercial imagery is an exciting advance in governmental benefit. So you mentioned earlier this article that Amy Zegard and I wrote in Foreign Affairs about the importance of technology and mm-hmm. the importance of the IC getting to the cutting edge of technology and staying there. And when we first chatted about it, you said, Michael, the answer is transparency. What did you mean by that? 
Um, do you remember that? I do. Uh, and I, I, I like the article. I, I could probably quibble a little bit with your assessment of where we are in terms of pursuing the solution to some of the conditions you mentioned. But I thought you hit a lot of the right articles. But this is a world that is increasingly transparent. It's a world where increasingly secrets aren't going to stay secret forever. And so whether we are transparent so that the American people understand our efforts on their behalf described in a way that we can describe it and still protect advantage, make data available that helps people understand what is really going on in the world or provide assessments that help national security. I think those are all the ways you have to behave in a world that is increasingly transparent on its own. I also think that in a world that is moving really fast, if we aren't careful, we will burden ourselves with things that slow us down but aren't providing the advantage that they used to. So you broke the big challenges into seeing the threats created by this new world mm-hmm. that we live in mm-hmm. and then the IC taking advantage of the new world we live in to enhance its capabilities, mm-hmm. right? So where where do you think we are on that journey of getting to where we need to be? Are we halfway there? Are we 90% of the way there? How would you... How would you assess that? Uh, I see. I think we're seeing the world more clearly every day. Just, just whether it was the Russian influence or uh, the Belt and Road Initiative of China or um, what Russia is doing in the Arctic. I, I just think now you see the we see the interplay much more clearly. I, I think, interestingly enough, a president who thinks more in economic terms than political military terms that was our want is actually expanding our horizons to think about economic uh, security more than we perhaps did. And that has enhanced us seeing the world and its varied relationships. So I think we see the world more clearly than we did before. I think we're going to, we're at the beginning of recognizing that we need to think about and understand technological advance differently, identifying differential technology developments. Uh, How did 5G become 5G, right? How was that one that was going to be transformative? What are other things like that? Not all the technologies, but which are the technologies that are coming? I think that's something that we're in our nascent of understanding, um, the National Intelligence Council is doing a good job on that. And because they have so many private sector relationships, I think we'll get on that. But I think that's one that's really important, which technologies will matter. Yeah. Which ones do you think matter the most? Uh, probably anything that has to do with data. So who's going to win the AI race? Um, telecommunications technology, high-performance computing. Uh, those are the ones that I think yeah. maybe materials adaptive um, manufacturing, the things that will happen faster. So technologies. Third is thinking about how this data world and this technology world will change 
the rate of developments. So you and I grew up with the Soviet development model where you see how missile production goes. That isn't the way it happens anymore, and so we have to do it. And then last, so I think we're coming along there, but that's a secondary thing. Uh, we're doing much better on cyber. Remember when cyber was only what the technical people did? Now with influence in cyber, all our regional analysts are thinking about that. So I think we're doing very well. Um, I believe we still need, we now will need to develop new trade, cra- new analytic trade craft. Whether that is because we're going to have to write more openly and writing for business or writing for the public is different from writing for government. I also think that we're in a world where we're producing informa- intelligence for people that want to do, not just people who want to know. And those cycles are getting shorter. And that's different craft. Yeah. So the world is not only very different than it was when you and I were growing I up in this so. business, right? But it's also changing very rapidly. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that the next five years of technological change is mm-hmm. going to be more dramatic than the last five. Yes. Right? So it's not only a question of getting to where you need to be. It's a question of keeping up. Right. How do you think about that? And you, you were talking earlier before we, we went on the air about new ways of thinking about the workforce and how you employ the workforce. So how do you think about all that? Yeah, so I was going to answer your question before you prompted me uh, to say if, I have, if the community has decided we need an initiative on using machines as partners, the other one is we really need to focus on the right trusted as a workforce. And I will say if we deal with our workforce issues right – We won't have to worry about solving any of the other problems because our people will. And here's what I mean. We we need to be able to attract, develop, move, and retain talent differently. We need to be able to get people in faster. We need to imagine a career that isn't going to be our 30-some-year career, but they're going to be able to move in and out. We need people that are – we're going to focus on – being having expertise not being experts and that my difference there is we used to hire people and they do the same job for 30 years and so staying in the community was the right thing to do because we're different and so that we wanted them to be experts no i need them to have the kind of expertise that they will be able to apply that to whatever changed world that comes and the way you develop expertise is not going to be in a straight line and that's moving in and out of the government so we have to do security clearance reform, uh, I have to imagine that I want people to be able to work anywhere, inside or outside the SCIF. I have to develop the technology so that they can, that I have, you know, the people in Silicon Valley would love to work for the intelligence community, but they're not coming to Washington to work. So i got to break right. that paradigm. Right. I've got young people that I had that live in Fredericksburg that I may come into Washington, D.C. Why in the world do I not let them stop in Springfield? So everything from who we retain, who we attract, how quickly we get them, how we reward them, how we development, how we move them, what we allow them to do and the tools we give them when they're there. If we can do that straight up. We will challenge anyone for any talent because our purpose is so great and the opportunities to do different things, I, we just have that in spades. So, Sue, we just walked through some huge issues. 
Maybe we could finish up with just some random questions. I'll try and answer them. So you work for Dan Coats. I do. He is the only core member of the president's original national security team who's still in his job. Every other key position on the national security team has changed Mm -hmm. at least once, if not more than once. What is Dan like? What is it like to work for him? Uh, So Dan's a great, solid American who has answered his nation's call uh, several times, many times when he was ready to retire and he came back. And there is something lovely and amazing about that. So that's one. Number two, he he's just a straight down the middle guy. I believe that the intelligence community is strong in part because of the way Dan has conducted his job. And here's what he's done. He has played intelligence straight down the middle. Um, and he's done it in a manner that is quiet, except when he has to correct the record, and he's been willing to do so. And because of that, the intelligence community has been able to get its eyes in the boat because he plays it down the middle, even when it's unpopular. But I will tell you that the American people believing in the independence of the intelligence community is great for this nation. The second thing is, is he has a tremendous um, provides tremendous benefit because of his history with the Congress and his respect therein. Uh, to have a leader who can, um, no matter whether the Congress is mad at us or happy with us, whether we're on the side of goodness or the side of vexing, that they will call Dan Coates, believing that he can help navigate that, that has been tremendous benefit. Um, I, I don't know any DNI could have done in this time what Dan Coates has done and proud to be part of a member of his team. Yeah, this is an editorial comment by me. Yeah, I think the intelligence community in the nation has been extraordinarily lucky. I agree. To have him at this place at this moment in time. And, and uh, absolutely. I don't know anyone else could have done it the way he's done it. I, I, think, I think we have a very strong community because of the way he has played his role. Second question is I want to ask you about, I want you to be honest about this. And I, no, and Michael, I said that, I no, said that, Michael, I said that because I'm... I'm involved in the answer. Okay. Right. So I want to ask you about former senior intelligence officers who are out there talking publicly mm-hmm. and they talk about, and I'm one of them, right? And they talk about three things. They talk about substantive issues, mm-hmm. you know, Iran, North Korea, and sometimes it gets into policy. They talk about intelligence-related issues, right? Things going on in the intelligence community mm-hmm. and how the public should think about it. And then some of them are actually out there talking about politics. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about that as an issue? Do you think it's the right thing for us formers to be doing? The wrong thing? How do you think about that? How does it strike you? Uh, so with the massive caveat that I've never been a former, so that kind of disqualifies me for having any real opinion. I'll tell you how it feels now. Number one is I think formers um, can have tremendous advantage. You can speak about issues in ways that, that we either can't or we aren't yet comfortable talking about. There's a really important thing that's going on right now with the openness. And when I talk transparency is 
These are issues that ought to be talked about. If we learn nothing else from Snowden, to only have one set of voices on issues is just not right. And there is something great about people who understand the world and the way intelligence officers understand the world. Sharing that view with the American people, I think that is tremendous benefit. So I think I think that's great. Um, where it has gotten difficult in this time um, is this is a hyper-political time. Uh, I'm and it's and it's difficult because we are all serious people who are just trying to solve some really serious issues and and there's so much chaff around that when the formers weigh in on politics it has not helped us because you impute back to us And then for those who would believe we have opinion other than the pursuit of truth that is our want, that is difficult. And as on a personal front, you guys, what made you think that we weren't able to do what we have done for my whole career, which is it is every policymaker, every president has wanted us to be able to say something we couldn't say. There is nothing new in that under the sun. And we know exactly. You knew. Your predecessors knew. We know how to do our job. So when you all weigh in and suggest that somehow this world is so, this administration is so weird that we don't know how to play it straight down the middle or that we aren't valued, it's weird like, when did you lose confidence in us? Mm. Mm. But it's both, right? Because it's nice to have your voice. Yeah, yeah. So, Sue, I want to finish by getting your reaction to two questions. And this is not just about the IC. This is about the country because mm-hmm. I think you are so thoughtful. What makes you the most optimistic about the future of our nation and what makes you worry the most? Um, what me, makes me the most optimistic is um, what makes us America. Uh, the fact that we vibrate, we vibrate with innovation. We vibrate with competitiveness. We vibrate with opinion. We tussle back and forth. The fact that our adversaries come here to steal our stuff should tell us something. Should tell us something. And when we compete, when we participate, when the government focuses, there is just nothing that beats this. And and there is nothing that I have seen that says the foundation of America, the strength of America whether that's our industrial base or the ingenuity and energy of our people has changed. And we are actually alive right now. There's some days when it feels overly negative, but there's an aliveness to us believing that we should have fight for this or fight for it. So I think that's what makes me the most optimistic. And like I said, intelligence is going to be a hero in this story. The thing that worries me the most is when we somehow think that our institutions have stopped being derivative 
of the founding principles of our nation. Whatever version of us not believing in ourselves, that is troubling to me. Questioning ourselves, aces. Being dissatisfied with what we're doing on any front, yay. We should constantly be dissatisfied because that's part of our greatness. But not believing that there is honor in our institutions, I think, is what troubles me. And then when that happens, it promulgates to not understanding that we have great partners. Part of the greatness of America, if you want to talk about a contrast between us and some of our competitors and adversaries, it's the partnerships that we have. And they are disproportionately alone and we are disproportionate together. And that is worth maintaining. Sue, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. That was Sue Gordon. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.